Whew. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Excited to have you with us tonight. I don't know how to continue after worship like that. <laughs> but um, come on, God is here and, uh, and God is good. And it's so good to be here. I'm so excited to preach tonight. I'm very excited to have Pastor Fred and Pastor Vanessa in the house with us. I gotta say it is refreshing to see their faces and to hear their voices. Yes, even their singing voices standing next to Fred and Vanessa, right? It is refreshing to, to see them in the flesh, healthy, well, um, back with us. Am I alone? Y'all agree with me? It, it feels good. But, um, well, I want to just jump in tonight. Uh, the, the title of my sermon is Faithfulness. Faithfulness, it's the hidden virtue. The hidden virtue. I, I, I have to admit that I don't often think about this virtue, faithfulness. Often, I think it just kind of runs in the background of my life. We kind of take it for granted. Usually, when we think of the word faithfulness, I don't know about you, this is just me. When I think of the word faithfulness, I think of marriage, right? The image, the, the thing that comes to mind is the faithfulness between a husband and a wife. But too often, even that fails to kind of be at the forefront of our mind. Usually, what is even more uh, prevalent is our concept or the idea, the reality of unfaithfulness, right? It isn't usually the faithfulness of a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband that makes the headlines, right? Usually it's the unfaithfulness. It's the, the absence of faithfulness that becomes suddenly apparent. And so lately I just, I, I've, I've seen that the, the faithfulness, my, my, my thoughts have been kind of, I've been ruminating on faithfulness and faithfulness has just been coming to the forefront uh, of my thinking. And, uh, but, but faithfulness typically for me, at least is one of those things where it's really, it just runs in the background. It, it's hidden in the backs of our lives. It, it's a virtue we take for granted and we don't really notice until it's gone and we just assume that people have it, that we even have it, that we're faithful, that people will be faithful to us and don't appreciate it until we realize that it's missing. So we recognize that faithfulness is important, but we don't think about it often. And yet it's one of the most important characteristics of God and of God's people we find in the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, it gives us this, this beautiful story of the presence of God passing in front of Moses. And it says just as God is passing, he's kind of uh, singing his own praises, right? And, and, and giving a description of who he is poetically to Moses. And this is how he describes himself in Exodus 34. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Come on, that's the God that we just worshiped tonight. That's the God that we serve. Faithfulness is a word that describes who our God is. It's also a word that describes who we should be as God's people. If you flip to the New Testament, all of the eschatological parables of Jesus, the, all of the stories that Jesus tells about the end times, so many of them use this word faithfulness to describe who we are as Christians, 
right? Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 12 compares the irresponsibility, the wickedness of, of unbelievers or, or, or uh, to, to uh, unfaithful servants. And then he describes the, the goodness and the, the faithfulness of, of Christian followers to faithful servants. Probably most popular is the, the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25. We know this story, right? Where the master stands in for Jesus and, and he says to his servants, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? It's faithfulness that's meant to describe us. It's the measure by which Jesus will evaluate our lives when he returns. And let me be clear I, I, what I'm not saying is that our salvation is conditioned upon our own faithfulness, right? We know that our salvation is unconditionally dependent upon his faithfulness to us. It's that dearest father, it's that closest friend, it's that steadfast, faithful love and mercy that, that, that saves us. But at the end of the day, all of us are gonna have a conversation. Those of us who rely on that faithfulness of God, his mercy, his graciousness, his love for salvation, we're going to have a conversation when we step into heaven and he's going to look at us and either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or you just barely made it, right? He's going to talk to us about how faithful we've been. And so I thought tonight that Maybe we should bring to the forefront this concept, this idea of faithfulness, since it's so central to what we believe and who we are as Christians. And what I want to do tonight, I want to use the book, the story of Ruth, and actually the character of Ruth herself as kind of a case study of, of what faithfulness looks like in the Bible. And so I don't have time. Ruth is actually a super short book. RC will, will tell you I've been talking about Ruth a lot lately, uh, and I've been encouraging them. Ruth is super short. By the way, can we give it up to RC? Don't they look good there in that row? Um, but yeah, it's a short book. It's a quick read. You could read the book of, of Ruth in like less than half an hour, probably an hour if you want to break for snacks. Uh, it's a quick read. All that to say, still, I don't have time to, uh, uh, to tell the whole story tonight. And so I have a video uh, that I found on TikTok that I think uh, quickly, why are you laughing? I think that quickly in a minute or less, we'll kind of give you an idea of what Ruth is, is all about. Let's watch. Lord, Daddy God, Abba Father, <laughs> I pray that he is tall, <laughs> if you will it, if you will it, your will, not mine. And God, I pray that he is funny, but not funnier than me. <laughs> Just so there's never any confusion at the end of the day who's funnier, it'll always be me. <laughs> but I do want him to make me laugh, because that's kind of a big deal. Um, and Lord, I pray that he can sing like John Mayer, uh, perhaps heartbreak warfare <laughs> but he has to sound good singing it and he has to be able to play it too because it's kind of a deal breaker for me again only if you will it lord your will not mine and god i just pray that he's like cute <laughs> you know what i like <laughs> jesus <laughs> and then i pray god that he just loves you he's a servant of the lord he's a man of god because i'm a lady of the lord and it only makes sense <laughs> but again your will your way Okay, I hope, I hope uh, it's I hope it's clear that uh, I'm 
being facetious, right? I'm joking. That does not accurately describe the story of Ruth. But I share that video because unfortunately, we've kind of relegated the, the story of Ruth to the realm of romantic comedy, right? We've made the story of Ruth all about her romance with Boaz, which you know, I would actually argue is a terrible model uh, for, for biblical Christian dating. Y'all who are laughing, read your Bibles. That's good to know people read their Bibles, right? Uh, Ruth, I would argue, is actually not a very good model uh, of what it looks like to, uh, to, 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 to date biblically. And, uh, and I also share that. So, so let me just say that if, if maybe Ruth, the story of Ruth has always just been a story about romance to you, I just want you to kind of put that preconceived notion on the shelf for a second. Also, I want to encourage you if you're a man or a young man in the room and you've, you've thought that Ruth is just a story for women about women. I think that's another thing. We usually relegate the stories of women in the Bible to like women's conferences. And we expect women to, to uh, identify with the men of the Bible, and yet we don't expect the men of the church to identify with the women of the Bible. And so, and so I wanna encourage men and young men tonight to, to identify with Ruth, or at least aspire to be like her. And so, probably because the video didn't do it justice, let me give you a better summary of, of the story of Ruth. Ruth is a widow. She gives up her life to serve her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow. And Ruth is, is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. But she moves to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Eventually, Ruth marries a man named Boaz. Yes, she does marry a man named Boaz, who is a kinsman, redeemer, long story. It just basically means in that culture, in that day and age, he was a relative of Ruth's husband and uh, therefore her, her dead husband and therefore was able to restore the lost bloodline of, of him by marrying her. And that probably doesn't sound simple or <laughs> at all, kind of sounds like the plot line of a soap opera, but that is the story of Ruth on the surface, right? Tonight, I want to go a little deeper, though, than, than that story that we see on the surface. I think that Ruth actually serves for us. She serves the purpose to us as the modern-day church of what it looks like to be faithful, you might be asking the question, faithful to who? Faithful to what? And for, for that, I want to I turn to her own manifesto, her own words in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. This is the commitment she makes to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you go, Ruth represents to us, or I'm sorry, uh, your people will be my, my people. Ruth represents to us what it looks like to be faithful in community. Your God will be my God. Ruth represents to us what it looks like to be faithful to God. And wherever you go, wherever you live, if you even continue into verse 17, she says, wherever you die, I'll die. Come on. Ruth represents to us what it looks like to be faithful in calling. And so let's just jump in here. Point one, faithfulness is hidden in our enduring commitment to community. Your people will be my people. Faithfulness is hidden in our enduring commitment to community. You know, the, the story of Ruth before it even introduces us to any characters right there in the very first verse of the very first chapter, it gives us the setting. And it says this, in the days when the judges ruled in 
Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. I don't know about you, but usually when I'm reading the Bible and I hear words like famine, it's a little bit hard to relate to, right? I've never experienced a famine in my life, but I think the reason why maybe I've gotten excited about the story of Ruth in this particular year is because this is the first time I can really, you know, relate to what it looks like to live in the midst of a natural uh, national, in our case, global uh, disaster or crisis, right? Given our, our state in the, the pandemic. And so, and so maybe you can substitute if it helps you to relate a little bit more to the characters of the story. Instead of famine, you can, you can think of it as a pandemic. And right, famine or pandemic, you learn a lot about yourself when you're in the midst of a crisis, right? And so, the story introduces us to a character who responds to this crisis. Before we can look at Ruth, who is an example to us, a positive example to us of what to do, we're introduced to someone who, who isn't, Elimelech. It continues in verse one. It says, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. I don't know about you, maybe you can relate in this season of a pandemic of wanting to escape, right? If you've been quarantined, if you've had COVID, if you've been near someone who's had COVID, maybe if you haven't returned to your actual workplace in some months, maybe even a year, if you're a student, hello, and you've been on virtual learning and you haven't seen your friends in months, nearly a year, then you might can relate to this desire, this urge to want to escape, right? So right off the bat, we can relate to this man, Elimelech, who, who runs, who flees this famine in his hometown. Elimelech is our example of what not to do, a foil to the faithfulness of Ruth. And so there's two ways to interpret Elimelech's leaving, which reflects our own common response to crisis and conflict in community. The first thing, is that often we run from responsibility. Let me tell you something, there's a difference between the kind of responsibility you have to community in our culture and in our society and in the culture and society, the agrarian, the farmer, farming culture and society that Elimelech would have found himself in. Elimelech was most likely a, a farmer. And, and when you live in that kind of society, there's this intense interdependence that you have with the people in your community. I've never fully experienced that, but the closest thing uh, that I've come to it is going to La Guazada in, in the Dominican Republic. Those of us who have gone there on our missions trip, La Guazada is the, um, is the, the town that we sponsor the village that we sponsor in the DR through Food for the Hungry. And we've gotten to go on short-term missions trips there and get to know the people of that village. And I'm telling you to go to that village and to meet the people is to love that village and to love that people and to be so inspired by this deep sense of interconnectedness and, and interdependence and reliability that they have with, with one another. One of the days when, when we were there, we were getting ready to, to do vacation Bible school and Pastor Justin had told us ahead of time, he, he facilitates the trips, right? And, and he told us ahead of time what to expect. He said, when you're in the DR, time is different. <laughs> 
He said, when you're in the DR, vacation Bible school might start at three o'clock, but vacation Bible school will start whenever the kids show up, right? Might be four o'clock, might be five o'clock, might be, you know, who knows? And sure enough, we were there three o'clock or whatever time vacation Bible school was, was supposed to be. And, uh, and there were no kids. And, uh, and it was like strangely quiet. Usually they're at least running around in the streets, but we knew school wasn't happening. It was the summer. And we were just wondering like, where are all of the kids? And so we asked around, we we're trying to figure out where are the kids are trying to do vacation Bible school. And they're like, oh, it's, it's harvest time. The onions have come down from the crops up higher in the mountain. And so all of the kids, like legit, all of the kids in the village, all of the people in the village were out in the streets cleaning and peeling and organizing and sorting and weighing the onions that these farmers had harvested. It was a beautiful, incredible picture to me of how incredibly interconnected, how dependent they are in, in such a society and a culture on one another. I say all that to say that when we see Elimelech leaving his community, his agrarian community, his farming village, we can assume safely that he was leaving behind some responsibility, that there were some people who, 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 who relied on him. Not only might we assume that Elimelech was running from responsibility, this man that, that we see in Ruth chapter one, verse one, but we might even assume that he was pursuing some sense of impossible peace. See, rather than merely running from responsibility, Elimelech was maybe advantageous in his motivation as well. He wasn't just leaving behind something bad. Maybe he was also chasing something better, which in our individualistic society, right, we can relate to. And so it's not as if there was no precedence for this, right? Maybe Elimelech had in the back of his mind Isaac. Isaac, one of the forefathers of our faith in Genesis chapter 26, verse one, was found himself in the exact same situation as Elimelech. It says in Genesis 26, verse one, a severe famine now struck the land. And so Isaac moved to Gerar where Abimelech, king of the Philistines lived. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, live here as a foreigner in this land and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all of these lands to you and your descendants. I wonder if Elimelech had in the back of his mind, not only Isaac's famine, but Isaac's blessing. I wonder if Elimelech had in the back of his mind, you know what, I know somebody who's been in this situation before and you know what they did? They left and they, they found blessing on the other side. You've never done that, right? You, you've never looked at greener pastures somewhere else, somewhere else and thought, you know, it's, it's kind of tight here. It's kind of heating up here. And I know somebody who left and went somewhere better and, and they were blessed. And the problem with that is Isaac heard directly from the Lord to go. And so God blessed it. And sometimes we compare our journeys, even compare our communities, even compare our commitments to our communities, to other people who have left and found blessing on the other side without taking the time to discern for ourselves. Is that blessing for me? Is that call to leave for me? We can compare not only, and maybe Elimelech should have compared not himself, not only to Isaac, but to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, that 
At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan. And so this is not, this is after God calls Abraham out of his hometown. He's somewhere else now. And, and so the, a famine hits there, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. Sounds like Isaac, sounds like Elimelech. But kind of skipping past the sticky situation that happens, basically, Abraham uh, sells his wife out and, and does wrong by her and also angers Pharaoh. And so what happens? In verse 20, Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort him out. And he sent Abram and, uh, out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. possessions. Didn't work out so well for Abraham, right? Abraham left the land where he was trying to avoid famine and was met with conflict, was met with hostility. Guess what? The famine found him, right? And for us, oftentimes we think, I've heard so many people say, can't wait to get out of Hampton Roads. I can't wait to get out of Virginia because change of scenery, because it'll be different there. Guess what? The famine will find you. If you're running from conflict, if you're running from pressure, if you're running from responsibility, that will find you. That's going to find you wherever you are. So hear me, I want to just say this real quick as a disclaimer. Our commitment to our particular community should, should never be unconditional. What I'm not saying is that you should endure all kinds of hardship wherever you're at. Sometimes it's absolutely appropriate to leave a community if it's a hostile environment, but that's only if the source of hostility is not just the usual brokenness of humanity. There's a measure of conflict that is normal and good for us and worth enduring. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, if we want to emulate anybody, let's, let's not just emulate Abraham or Isaac or Elimelech. Let's emulate Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We're familiar with that part. We're good at enduring our crosses. But, but what about this? It says, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. And then you won't be weary and give up. Can I just put a little parentheses behind sinful because when we hear that, we think evil. Really what it's saying there is imperfect people. Wherever you flee to, whatever community you go to, it's going to have some sinful, imperfect people there. And, and we are called to endure. We're called to commit, again, not if it's abusive, not if it's harmful for us, So our commitment to a particular community, it should never be unconditional. But I, what I will say is that it shouldn't be convenient either. <laughs> it's not unconditional, but it shouldn't be convenient either. Pastor Fred a few weeks ago challenged us as a church. I was challenged. I don't know about you. I was challenged at our anniversary service where, where Pastor Fred gave an incredible sermon and, and a vision for us as a church. This is what he said. He said, city life is supposed to be a community of faith where the world sees people reconciling relationships that seem irreconcilable. We're supposed to be a place, a community where the world sees us reconciling relationships that seem irreconcilable. 
We're supposed to be a diverse place. We're supposed to be a place where people from all walks of life and personalities and ideologies come and are welcomed and, and, and we get to collaborate with them. We're supposed to be a place where people see the relationship miracle of reconciliation, but that does not come without a cost. That does not come conveniently. That is difficult. It's hard. It's going to invite conflict and hostility in the, the broad sense of the term. But guess what? That's the call of the church, like the church with a capital C. Whether it's City Life Church or you find yourself somewhere else, you cannot avoid the fact that Christ calls us to be diverse. He calls us to be a, a, a diverse body that reflects his image. And so if I'm being honest, that, that's a hard challenge for me. I've listened to that sermon multiple times. I even got a heads up from Pastor Fred that it was coming and he cast vision to us as a staff team. I'm still trying to get that message inside of my flesh, right? It's a hard thing to hear, but I'm committed, right? I, I've made it a point to be committed to my community. So that's point number one. Point number two is this. Faithfulness is hidden in our ordinary obedience to God. It's hidden in our commitment to community, and it's also hidden in our ordinary obedience to God. God is remarkably absent in the story of Ruth. And by that, I don't mean that God literally, you know, wasn't there or, you know, he, he stepped out for a second and didn't know what was going on. Like God was there in the background, but we don't hear God talking. We don't see God doing. We don't hear God speak. We only hear God spoken of. And uh, Naomi has some stuff to say about God, right? She, she's bitter about God and, and, and says some, some words about uh, her bitter situation, kind of blaming it on God. But even in the midst of her bitterness, in the midst of her famine, she was able to still have a little bit of hope and trust that God was still that faithful, trustworthy, loving, merciful God that Exodus 34 tells us he is. In Ruth chapter 1, Verse eight, Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love. Ruth two, verse 20, Naomi says to Ruth, after Ruth finds favor with Boaz, this kinsman redeemer who would eventually redeem their family line, Naomi says about him, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That, those two phrases, kindness and faithful love, are really the same Hebrew word, which is chesed. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but it felt good, right? It's a word very closely related with faithfulness. We don't have a, an equivalent in the English language, but basically it's this concept of steadfast love, faithful kind of love. What's interesting Knowing that this is how, who God is and how God is described not only throughout Ruth, but throughout the Bible, it should catch our attention then when we get to Ruth chapter 3, verse 10. And it says, Boaz says of Ruth, you are showing even more family loyalty. That phrase, family loyalty, same exact word, chesed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. In this moment, in this, maybe for us, a throwaway compliment in the English, if we look at it in the Hebrew, we can see that in this moment, in this compliment, Boaz 
was connecting the character of God to Ruth. It's this compliment that assures us that Ruth is someone we can look up to when it comes to faithful obedience to God. Why do I say that? First John 2, 3 through 6, it says this. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Boaz looked at Ruth and said, wow, you look like God. You walk like God. It illustrates to us that behind the scenes before this moment, Ruth had been faithful, that Ruth had been obedient to God because he looked like God to Boaz. She's presented to us as a character who is not only faithful to her community, but faithful in her obedience to God as evidenced by her character. Interesting thing though, this high praise that Ruth receives from Boaz comes in the most morally compromising context. Boaz says this to Ruth in his bedroom late at night. This is before they were married. How did Ruth find herself there? Ruth, taking Naomi's advice, has let herself into Boaz's bedroom late at night after he had been drinking. She uncovers his feet and lays down in the bed with him. By the way, not only is Ruth not usually used in like mixed company, it's also not a great text usually at youth conferences, right? Like this is not a story we usually hear at Origins Conference every year or at camp, right? Parents, rest assured, I am not asking your kids to go to Ruth chapter three for dating advice, uh, uh, how we should do it biblically, amen. <laughs> um, and the thing is, a lot of has changed between now and Bible days, but this hasn't changed. Naomi should not have given Ruth this advice, right? She knew that this was not the right thing to do. And yet, Ruth found herself out of obedience not only to Naomi, but to God in Boaz's bedroom late at night. And let me just pause here for a second. If you think that Ruth is the only hero of faith who has ever found herself in such a, a morally compromising situation, I invite you to think again. Can we think about Abraham for a second? I don't know that there's anything more morally compromising than murder, right? And yet, out of an act of obedience, he, he brings his son Isaac to the, the top of a mountain and nearly kills him, right? Until God stops him real quick. What about Moses subverting the authority of Pharaoh? Mary carrying Jesus as an unwed woman. You don't think culturally what that would have looked like? Morally compromising, right? Jesus flipping tables in the temple. Have you ever wondered why God would call such heroes of the faith into seemingly morally compromising situations? I have a hunch. My theory is, that the ones God calls to such radical obedience are the ones who have the character to sustain it. They're the ones who have the character to sustain it. If we continue in Ruth chapter three, verse 11, Boaz is still singing Ruth, Ruth's praises and listen to what he says. He says, now don't worry about the thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. In this moment, I love this. In this moment, maybe we should talk about this more at youth conferences, right? In this moment of potential compromise, Boaz never misses a beat. 
He does not misread Ruth's intention. Why? Because he knows her to be a virtuous woman, a woman of noble character. Ruth's intentions were not what it appeared it to be. And because Boaz knew who Ruth was, he figured that out. He was able to say, you're here for some other reason. God could use Ruth in this extraordinary way because she was faithful and faithfully obedient in the ordinary. So many of us are drawn to the idea of being obedient to God in the extraordinary, in the radical, right? College students, you want to evangelize at the darkest places of campus, the bar or the parties, teenagers. You want God to use you to reach not just your school, but the most popular kids in your school or that guy or that girl you find kind of attractive, right? There's parents laughing kind of hard out there. The rest of us, we're not off the hook, right? We want God to use our Fortune 500 company one day, right? To just bless the church, right? We want God to use our thousands of social media followers. We want to be the face of the next protest or the next movement. It's all fine and well to have those desires. But my question for you tonight is, if you want to be used by God in those moments, can your character sustain that? Can your character sustain that? Because if we look at the Bible, God does not ask extraordinary obedience, radical obedience, and morally, what appears to be morally compromising situations of people who have not been obedient in the small stuff, faithful in the small stuff, built the characters to sustain them in the radical. In just the past few months, some of the biggest names in the Christian world have been brought low, right, by the lapse, their lapses of character. And I'm not here to judge them. I'm also not here to excuse or condone their actions, but I'm here to lament. We don't need to point fingers and we don't need to blame and we don't need to do any of that. But you know what we do need to do, church? We need to learn the lesson. We need to learn the lesson. The lessons we learn from these most recent failings, Carl Lentz and Ravi Zacharias, is that before we can be obedient to God on the biggest platforms, we must be faithful to him in the smallest, most mundane daily steps of obedience. So God doesn't say, does God say, right in Matthew chapter 25, well done, my good and famous servant. Well done, my good and fruitful servant. No, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. We want to be, we think often, so often that we're going to, God's going to sing our praises when we get to heaven for being famous or being fruitful when really He's going to sing our praises for being faithful, obedient in the small stuff. So like Ruth, our world-shaking obedience is hidden in the mundane. Before she ever stepped foot in Boaz's bedroom, she knew her character and so did Boaz, right? Last point is this. Faithfulness is hidden in our integrity and calling. Ruth says to Naomi, where, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Wherever you die, I'll die. Y'all know that phrase, don't, don't judge a book by its cover. And I would say about the story of Ruth, don't judge uh, uh, the book by the title. Ruth, 
seems to be, sounds like from its title, a story about Ruth, right? But we get to the end of the story and we find something different. Ruth chapter four, verse 13. This is Ruth's most glorious moment, right? This is like the end of her story. The last time her name is even mentioned. And this is what it says. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he was intimate with her. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you, Naomi, in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law doesn't even say her name, Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and took care of him. And the neighbor women said, a son has been born to who? Ruth? No. A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I'm calling faithfulness the hidden virtue tonight, not only because it runs kind of discreetly in the background of our lives, but also because it calls us to the background. You know, last week, Pastor Justin preached this incredible sermon on calling. And, you know, we don't have time to get into the full definition of calling. And so if you missed it, this is the plug. This is the commercial to go back one week in your podcast and listen to it. But one of the things he said, he, he talked about that calling is nothing more or less really at the root of what a calling is for us as Christians is to belong to Christ. Romans 1, 6, it says this, you are included among the Gentiles who have been called. Called to what? To belong to Jesus Christ. You know, if you Google sermons or articles or videos about Ruth and her story, you're going to yield a lot of results that have the phrase, find your Boaz, (laughs) or wait on your Boaz, right? As if the point of the story of Ruth is that she pursued some guy named Boaz, when really the point of the story of Ruth is that she was faithful and faded in the background. We imagine that Ruth woke up every morning and like on her bedroom was like a vision board of like her husband and like, you know, her her kids. And she had the word redeemer up there. Like she was like, yeah, this is what I hope to be. You know, if Ruth had a vision board on her bedroom wall, you know what it would say? Just one phrase, follow Naomi. That was it. Ruth's calling was not title was not accomplishment. It was to just follow Naomi. And then the moment of her clearest conviction in Ruth chapter one, verse 16, where she says out loud her manifesto, her vision. She says, I'll go where you go. I'll do what you do. I'll live where you live. I'll die where you die. And as far as she knew in that moment, She was going to live forever as a widow. As far as she knew in that moment, she was going to live forever without a child. As far as she knew in that moment, her legacy, her family line were going to disappear in history. That's what Ruth committed to. 
That's the calling that Ruth had. And what I love about Ruth is that she woke up every morning and she looked at Naomi and she said, I'm going to do whatever this woman tells me to do. I'm going to go wherever this woman goes. And yeah, even I'm going to die where she dies. If we think about calling as this clamoring to title or to some huge accomplishment, we're going to fail. We're going to fall. Because really, at the end of the day, what our calling as Christians is, it's just like Ruth. It's to follow. And not Naomi, right? We're called to follow Jesus Christ. That's our calling. And whatever happens after we make that commitment, that's on God, right? But when we wake up, we say, wherever you go, wherever you live, yes, even Jesus, wherever you die, I'm going to die. Just as we close, the, um, as Pastor Fred said earlier tonight, you know, it's Black History Month. And so I hope that you are uh, digging into podcasts and videos and books that you normally maybe wouldn't kind of getting educated on, on not just black history, but our history as uh, Americans. Black history is American history, right? And so I was doing a little bit of that on, on a drive recently. I was listening to a podcast and it, it brought up this, uh, this passage from Parker Palmer, who's a Christian author. And he, it wasn't so much about black history as much as it was about uh, Rosa Parks. And uh, Rosa Parks, uh, this is what Parker Palmer calls in his book, The Rosa Parks Decision. He has a book that that talks about movements like political or social movements. And this is what he says. He says, the first stage in a movement can be described with some precision, I think. It happens when isolated individuals have an inner choice to stop leading divided lives. Rosa Parks' decision to remain sitting when asked to move on that famous day in 1955 was neither random nor taken in isolation. She served as a secretary from, for the local NAACP and had studied social change at the Highland, Highlander Folk School and was aware of others' hope to organize a bus boycott. But her motive on that day in Montgomery was not to spark the modern civil rights movement. Rosa Parks sat. Why? Because she was tired. And no, not tired like physically like her feet hurt. She corrects that in her autobiography and says, you know, I never said that. I wasn't all that tired physically, but I was tired of something else. Says she was tired of the vast demoralizing gap between knowing herself as fully human and collaborating with the system that denied her humanity. You know what I think integrity of calling is? It's that. It's closing that gap between who we feel we're called to be and what we've committed to and how we actually live. It's so crucial. It's so essential for us to see Rosa Parks as an ordinary person. And I don't mean that what she did, I don't mean to say that what she did in life was not extraordinary, but the only reason why we know her name is because this small act sparked a movement kind of, you know, accidentally. She didn't set out to do that. It would have been an incredible thing that she did, not only for the movement, but because she was being true to who she knew herself to be, a full human being. 
bearing the image of God. And she finally said, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. I'm no longer going to divide who I know myself to be and the decisions that I make in this life. And so I just want to encourage us as we close out tonight to be challenged to close the gap. As we just sing the song together tonight, I want to ask the Holy Spirit, come on, and you can actually just stand where you are. Let me pray for us before we do. Holy Spirit, I ask you, God, to close the gap. God, to help us to see the gap between who you've called us to be, between the commitments we know we're supposed to make to our community, to our family, to our churches, to our friends. God, close the gap between the faithful obedience I'm supposed to have every day and how I actually live. God, I pray that as we sing this song to close tonight, God, that you would speak to us, move around some stuff in our hearts and help us to realize, is there any gap? Is there any discrepancy? Help us to be faithful, God, in Jesus' name. Let's worship.